0: Welcome to Creative Block. We're your host, Gene,
1: And V. we interview people in creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam.
0: We asked people on Twitter if they had specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as some drawing prompts.
1: And today with us, we have Ego Plum. Hi.
0: Hey, thanks for having me here. Thanks for being on the show. You uh, are our first musical guest, musically inclined guest. Um, we might have had some latent musicians in the past, but none that do it professionally. Um... Well, I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're, uh, you have a long, amazing career, done a lot of things, worked on a lot of shows, done a lot of scoring, uh, done all kinds of stuff. Um, but for those who might not know, tell us who you are and what you do.
2: Okay. Well, my name is Ego Plum, and I'm a composer for, uh, animation, mostly. Uh, yeah, I kind of consider myself a, a cartoon composer. It's it's what I love to do and have been doing for a while now. Um, I've worked on shows like uh, Making Fiends, Harvey Beaks, uh, Spongebob Squarepants, um, The Patrick Starr Show, Camp Coral, um, and most recently Jellystone and The Cuphead Show. hmm your favorite no i'm just kidding
0: um
2: (laughs) let's, let's start a fight
0: right now on the internet how uh how did you first get your start in music
2: uh well i grew up in a musical household luckily i had older brothers that were all very musical and had like very cool taste in music as well so there was always instruments in the house um but that wasn't all i was of course obsessed with the cartoons and growing up on looney tunes so um Watching Looney Tunes, I was exposed to the music of musical director, Carl Stalling, who would play a lot of music at the time, but he, was, he exposed me to classical music and opera and jazz. And one artist in particular named Raymond Scott, who has been one of my biggest musical influences. Um, I love Raymond Scott's music, but so this was where I was first exposed and learned a lot about music. It was my music education, essentially. Uh, and as I got a little older, you know, as an early teen, I discovered a show called uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, yeah. Saturday mornings. Um, maybe a little before your times, but I'm sure you're aware. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Um, that was a really important show to me uh, for a few reasons. Um, the score for that show was made by people that I've grown to just love and, and admire so much. I didn't realize what that music was at the time, but Paul Rubens had the good sense to hire Danny Elfman, Mark Mm -hmm. Mothersbaugh, and uh, a group from San Francisco that I really love called The Mm Residents. So um, I didn't know I was listening to this, but it was so interesting and different and strange. And I realized there's more interesting stuff happening in the incidental music of this children's show than the music I'm hearing on MTV or the radio. It felt subversive and different and unusual. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to do interesting, weird things uh, on shows. I, I realized that this is the place where you could really let your music go in strange directions and do the most absurd and surreal things. And I heard that in Carl Stalling, because I would listen to his scores just independently as I was doing my homework without the cartoons. And if you hear it just like that, it's the most avant-garde abstract music you'll ever hear. It, you'll just wonder like, why is it doing what it does? Carl Stalling could turn music into rubber essentially like he would like stretch it like a rubber band slow it down speed it up That's really interesting yeah he was like a r- remix artist but he was using an orchestra to remix music Wow you know in real time it was ridiculous so uh yeah um that's like my early exposure to music and what I was getting turned on to partially at least
1: That's really interesting do you have any uh avant-garde favorite musicians like I don't know like in the classical field like I don't know is well, Satie a
2: <laughs> Yeah, he's a really unusual uh, composer because he just seems like completely out of place in time. Like his music just feels so modern and new, but he was doing it before, before anyone did stuff like that. One guy I really like is Harry Parch, uh, who was inventing instruments. So nothing uses like Western scales and every single instrument was something he created and invented. But the, the, the my most favorite group is the avant-garde uh, San Francisco collective called the residents, which is famous for being anonymous. They've like existed oh. for now 50 years and they never revealed their identities. Damn, wow. So they just created this music um, just for the sake of creating it. It wasn't like about fame or anything like that. It was just really bizarre. Uh, and again, that, those, those guys were involved in Pee Wee's Playhouse on a kid show. I mean, I thought yeah. that was so subversive, and even hearing like Mark Mothersbaugh doing Rugrats music for me felt completely subversive because I had seen Devo, and I knew they were strange and kind of fucked up, and uh, and I just love that about it. I love that you could sort of infiltrate the mainstream in a way and and bring your own perspective and and original ideas. That are just different into you know mainstream stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you first get involved in uh, like the punk rock scene?
2: Well, again, I had I was had the luck of having older brothers who exposed me to all this great music. I would flip through the records and I discovered, of course, like the Ramones and the Clash bands, like the Dead Kennedys, uh, and this stuff was important to me because this is how I learned to play music. I would sit sure. there with a Ramones record and play along to the drums. Uh, really hard to keep up with Marky or Tommy Ramone on drums because it's like your hand will start to cramp up trying to play the high like that. Uh, But, you know, I would do that or B-52's record. I would learn the guitar parts. Like this was my music education. I never had any formal music education. I never went to college either. Uh, But this is where I would just sit in there by myself in the room learning music from these guys. It was, uh, all this stuff meant the world to me, this music. And I started, uh, when I was 13, I got a drum set, and my friends got together, and we started covering punk rock songs. We played Clash songs, or Ramones, or Bauhaus, or whatever it was. And I formed my first band, and that's when I first started writing music with my friends. And um, it's that's where I learned, like, okay, I I understand the structure of a song. I think I know how to do this, and um, that was another uh, big part of a music education. Playing live, playing music with with your friends in the garage, or doing shows, backyard parties. Yeah, I kind of learned how to write and write, you know, with these guys all together. Um, and so yeah, that's what I was doing a lot of. But I realized soon enough when I, you know, was hitting my twenties and doing music, like I'm not going to be able to make a living doing a band. Yeah, it's going to be really, really difficult. Uh, I got very ambitious in in my 20s, where I formed this thing called the Ebola Music Orchestra, which was like a 10 to 12 piece ensemble that had accordions and cellos and xylophones. And it was really like, I was very inspired by Oingo Boingo. And I was trying to make Mm -hmm. almost what sounded like cartoon music or circus music on stage. And these shows were a lot of fun and very elaborate. And they would cost me a lot of money to do. And I wouldn't make any money. And then, you know, we'd have a, a little audience of maybe 50 or 100 people. And that was nice and fulfilling, but at a certain point, I was like, "Okay, this is not gonna, this is not gonna pay any bills, and I'm gonna keep working in this day, day job a lot longer or forever." Um, and I need to think of something else. So that's when, you know, pursuing scoring became more real to me.
1: What was your day job like at the time? Because you said you didn't. Uh, did you go to college? I think you said you. No, didn't
2: no, go. I didn't. But what I did after high school is I got a job at UCLA. Oh. And worked in the doing graphics. I was like a graphic artist and uh, making the early websites for the Department of Physics and Astronomy. Oh, cool. So uh, that was that was a good place for me to be because I always like I really believed in u- utilizing the resources that you have, like essentially stealing. <laughs> yeah. After five o'clock, good we artist. Done, I would stay there and use our color printers and and scanners and you know. Uh, Photoshop and Illustrator and the software that they had there. So I would make like design my CD covers and flyers for shows. There were certain nights where I would be there working until like seven of the morning. And then I would like leave and then come back, just sit in the car and then come back in. So it would look like I, I'm starting work with everybody else, you know, and I would do that all the time. I was, you know. when
1: did you sleep?
2: <laughs> I was impressive. I mean, <laughs> this wasn't all the time, but uh, I, this was, uh, something that I felt totally comfortable doing. I remember Werner Herzog saying, uh, you know, the film director, like uh, that he thinks he would teach uh, students of film, like the art of like picking locks and forging documents, because, you know, these are essential tools for the art of filmmaking. And he actually stole his first (laughs) camera, like a 16 millimeter Bullocks from film school. And he made his first three or four films with it. So I'm like, yeah, you have to steal in order to, you know, to do what you need to do as an artist, so yeah, I was completely comfortable utilizing the resources from that place. In fact, I had to pull this scam to get like my first loan. This is really crazy. Watch, I've okay. never said this out loud. So well, it's gonna be it's <laughs> gonna be online forever. So let's. let's I love it. it. Okay, so at that time, Apple used to have like a, a student loan program. I don't know if they do that anymore. Uh, but at UCLA, there was a thing out in, in the computer store that said like Apple Loan. And uh, they'll give you a loan if you're going to buy Apple equipment from the computer store. So I went to the computer store and I made this, like, I got an estimate for about twelve or fifteen thousand dollars worth of computer equipment, which I knew was like the maximum of what their loan would would be allowed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I sent this estimate to Apple, and I and I had to sign up for school, and I found a UCLA extension program, which is sort of like equivalent to like adult night school. And I took like a course on like how to quit smoking. It was the cheapest thing for like thirty-five bucks. Yeah. It was just like three nights, but it gave me a receipt that said I was a technically an enrolled UCLA student, right? And I used I sent that to Apple along with the estimate, and I got a fucking check Damn. for like I can't remember if it was ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Wow. And I wasn't intent on buying that much computer equipment, so I somehow cashed the check, or I bought some equipment that I needed and then got change. That's fucking. You know what awesome. I mean?
0: Yeah. So that's... then
2: I took that to Guitar Center, and bought my amps, microphones, uh, uh, monitors, you know, uh, speakers, and uh, some interfaces and different things that I needed, and built my first studio with that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Damn. Wow. What a. <laughs> but like, that's, right. you
1: said that was a loan, right? Like, yeah, it was where... a loan.
2: I, of course, I paid it back.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: You know, but I had a. Kind of like trick the system into getting the stone that I would it's have never investment.
1: Had. Right, I see, I see. Wow, that's so crazy. That's so interesting and cool. I like that. So, have you ever smoked?
2: No. <laughs> you, no I,
1: you took those classes. how to stop
2: smoking. <laughs> yeah, I've never smoked a cigarette. <laughs> or or yeah, because you took
0: the class, you didn't. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I never went to the class. I just completely ignored it. But uh, <laughs> here's the other thing that was good about being on campus. The other thing I would do is I would frequent the Department of Film and Television. I would hang out there. There was a bulletin board there and I would just always go see like if anyone like was looking for a composer. And I started making little ads and I'd put them up like a composer available for student projects. And I made contacts like that. Basically I was getting the same uh, benefits of being enrolled in a school Uh, by just walking into that area and having lunch there and like maybe making a friend or going to the uh, like the screenings on certain days, once a month with like screen the student films. So one time I go in there to a screening and I see this movie, this short called The Bad Plant. And it was the only one that was really unusual. It was like a plant that like eats a person. It was just dark, like cute and like bizarre and kind of dark. I'm like, okay, this is the only thing I like out of these 25- short films i've seen it was like cgi early cgi Mm -hmm. Uh, we're talking the year 2000 or so right Right. so then i'm about to walk out as uh of the place thinking boy that was cool night and something hit me like you know what i should go back and find who made that and and give them a cd a cd that i that had you know pressed myself you get like a thousand made at the cd pressing place Mm -hmm. with artwork that i made myself on photoshop on the computer time that i stole at my job (laughs) uh And I find, I ask around who made that bad plant? And they go, oh, it's uh, the woman over there. And I go introduce myself and she's like, hi, my name is Amy Winfrey. And I say, oh, my name is Ego. Uh, I just wanted to give you my CD. I really loved your film, Bad Plant. And um, she goes, oh, thank you. And I was just really shy and kind of like, okay, bye. And I just turned around and walked away. (laughs) Didn't think about it for for years until 2006 or so. uh, I get an email or a call from Amy She's like, hi, Ego. Remember we met a long time ago. Um, You know, I'm actually developing a show called Making Fiends at Nickelodeon. And I remembered, you know, your your CD that you gave me. Would you be interested in being a part of it? And I'm like, well, fuck yeah. And uh, at the same time, I'm like, hey, I'm having my record release party for my Ebola music orchestra thing. And she came to my record release party in Hollywood and she saw that I was active. Like, you know, maybe it was only like I don't know, hundred people at the show, but she saw that I was actively working and doing music. Like mm-hmm. everything served a purpose. Everything happened exactly how it needed to, you know, the band didn't take off, it always but does. Yeah. the fact that Amy was there watching me perform and realizing like this guy is still actively doing music and even yeah. more doing more interesting stuff than he was when he put out this first record of just Casio uh, cartoon music for non-existent cartoons was mm-hmm. basically what I did. I made a album was just instrumental weird tracks that's what i wanted to do that's so so she uh hired me on making fiends and that was my first gig and i met on that show uh, a guy named dave wasson
0: mm-hmm. uh
2: who remained my friend who is now the guy who runs uh, cuphead and mm-hmm. hired me to work on cuphead 15 years later it's amazing how this chain of things work a out circle. you know what I mean? It blows my fucking mind to think like, how did this happen? Like,
1: man. I love that you just got all of the benefits of going to college by going there to get paid. Yeah, like You yeah. didn't spend money on college, you got paid to go. I love that. <laughs> yeah, this honestly, is so great.
2: Yeah. yeah. But listen, it took a fucking decade of me being in this job. It was like office space, that movie. I just like, in mm-hmm. a cubicle and I hated it. Yeah, And it would take this vanpool home all the way to East LA. It was like an hour and 20 minutes home and to and from every Ugh. day. I would Ugh. fall asleep on the, on the 10 freeway and I would fantasize about like another life, music. And then I'd open my eyes in a cold sweat and realize I'm on the freeway wearing a tucked in shirt <laughs> yeah. and pleated pants going home from the job. Can, can I ask how old you were when you first got that gig on, um, on themes? Uh, well, so that would be, okay, it's, let's do the math. So in the year 2000, I'm 25. And Fiends was 2006, so I just turned 30, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, so it was like a whole decade. Uh, My entire 20s were just struggling, essentially, because here's the deal, man. Like, growing up in East L.A. and my parents were immigrants and they ran a dry cleaners, right? Like, they were loving and supportive, but for them, what they wanted for me was like, hey, one day you could take over the cleaners. That was their, like, Mm -hmm. hope for me that was sort of the ceiling of what they saw as what you could achieve you know, in this country. Uh, you know, cause they were, my mom came in here and she was a seamstress and my dad worked at various dry cleaners and they saved up enough money to like get a spot, pay rent and they bought the equipment and they made it in their minds. Like this is what they wanted to do. And they were like, Hey, you know, you could take over. And uh, so the thing is like, the, the ceiling was just very low and I had these ambitions of, Things way beyond. But frankly, Hollywood seems so fucking far away in so many ways, man. Like it may have sure. only been a 30, 40 minute drive west on the freeway, but the people that were making cartoons and doing music may as well have been space aliens like David Bowie coming from Mars, Danny and Mark Mothersbaugh. These guys were like people I idolized that I didn't feel were reachable. And let alone me be one of them. Like this was not going to happen. So I was really shy. It was hard for me to talk to people. I remember one time there was a meeting. I was gonna meet with a director, this guy named Darren Stein, who was making this movie called Jawbreaker or something. And I went to, to meet him and I just stood outside the office and I couldn't, I couldn't open the door. Like I couldn't knock. I felt my hands getting sweaty, mm-hmm. I had a CD. And I just left the CD like in the mailbox and I left. That's where I was because something was just stopping me. Like, I felt like this is, I don't belong here. Uh, This is not my world. It took me a whole decade to sort of get over that. It was like, my life could have been so different if, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's a cultural thing where I'm from. It's just, I just didn't felt like that world was for me. Yeah.
1: It's just so impressive though, that you still, you never gave up on the dream right? It's like, even though it felt like it was so far away and unreachable, you never gave up on it, right?
2: Right. And it makes me super grateful. You know, to this day, I still feel like I wedged my foot in this door and it, it could close at any time. So yeah. I don't take any job for granted. I've yeah, I that really feeling never my goes ass away. Off. Yeah. I work my ass off on every job I do, no matter what it is. And I I'm, I don't even complain. I mean, so, yeah, sometimes I complain to friends, like, oh, but I don't have time. Sure, yeah. You're a normal human being. <laughs> you're, but, gonna, but, uh, you're gonna you're
0: vent, yeah.
2: Right, but the reality is like, I'm doing everything I wanna do. The other day I was recording with a trombone player and I'm having him do farts, <laughs> Spongebob thing or a Patrick Star thing, I don't know. And I, he sent them in to me and I was like, you know what? These are good, but they're too realistic. I like (laughs) that it's kind of wet, but could you make it start on a note and then go go sharp? Like, you know, a C, go to the C sharp. And I I stopped and realized, wow, this is my job. This is amazing. I'm so (laughs) lucky. I'm really blessed and lucky that this is what I get to do for a living. So yeah, I'm full of gratitude. And I'm also always afraid that it's all going to go away at any moment. (laughs) so weird.
1: That's so funny. Do you have... By any chance, mm. uh, representation? Because I saw your website and it's super professional.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I have a. I'm represented by Craft uh, Angle uh, Management, which mm. represents some of my favorite composers like Danny Athman and John Bryan and uh, um, this is the guy that does all the David Lynch movies, um, mm. Angelo Lamenti and mm-hmm. a bunch of other big guys. Uh, it's amazing being a part of a big agency. Although what that means is I'm sort of on the bottom. <laughs> Of a list of amazing people. So, uh, you know, but it's still really cool. Yeah, I have, I definitely have representation. I have for about, I don't know, at least five, eight years or so. I can't remember.
1: Did you get it for when you started working with uh, Amy on uh, making fiends or was it? No, after? no,
2: I was still flying solo. The way I got them is because I was quite liter- literally sitting on a, on like a, a big fucking contract from Disney. And I had no representation. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I called them. I'm like, hey. And, you know, dollar signs probably <laughs> flashing in their eyes. Like, right. hey, I'm just a guy and I have this contract. Do uh, you want to represent me? And all of a sudden people want to <laughs> talk to you, right? <laughs> so I uh, Yeah. I Otherwise, I don't think I'd, I'd be able to find an agent. But yeah, I had actually two. Con- I think it was like, it could have been Harvey and something at Disney that kind of came and went um yeah but that's how i got an agent hmm. do you feel I like had something that they want
0: yeah do you feel like it helped you get to where you are now or um do you think you would have been able to having an now? agent yeah
2: i could say that i've never gotten a job from my agency i've gotten every job through my own like my own work and connections Yeah, just networking. they don't get you jobs necessarily they facilitate you know everything that i never want to do like talk about numbers and what i'm going to get paid like I, that is the worst thing to deal with and I'm oh sure yeah that they could and make sure that i'm taken care of on season two and make sure my credit is this size and holds for this long on the screen stuff that i i'd be embarrassed to say out loud <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's yeah it's it's like a business manager almost it's like it's the stuff that yeah as creatives we don't really want to have to deal with and but it's a lot of work never
2: want to talk about, yeah i never want to talk about money with anyone ever in yeah, my life that's it
0: the worst that sucks <laughs> yeah. and it's a useful thing to have I, I think that we we've talked about agents before with uh animation and comics mm-hmm. but yeah. never with music and so it's interesting that it's still the same it's it's still the same issues and it's still just kind of legitimizes
2: helped. what i do as well like i think right oh yeah people look are looking for someone and they see well this guy these guys represent danny elfman and ego Plum. well ego must be somebody so I become legitimized in the eyes of, of producers, I think, and, and studios mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I'll get offers for things that are interesting as a result that I probably wouldn't if I was just a guy floating around. Right. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you managed to keep
0: up uh, your own like personal work while you've been doing scoring?
2: That's a great question. And the answer is no. And I'm really longing to, it's really important that I figured this out because um I have ambitions to perform live again. This is like what I was doing when Amy saw me. And essentially I quit performing once I started working as a composer. And I always wanted to do it again, but I got busier and busier. And uh one of my goals now is to put together, and I'm saying this out loud because I feel like if I put it out there, yeah, be more pressure for me we'll to hold do you it and, to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. people ask me about it, and then I'll make it happen. So I have this vision of putting together this live band that is sort of like um, set mostly electronic, almost set up like in the way like Kraftwerk or Depeche Mode would be set up, mm-hmm. uh, but it would also perform my own music and in addition to cartoon music live. So it would be like this weird electronic, electro-punk cartoon band where I would perform stuff from the shows that I've worked on, like synchronized to video projections and also just my own... Weird stuff. That sounds so fucking cool, ego. Yeah, almost it's like, like a, a, imagine like a cartoon Nine Inch Nails.
0: Oh, that sounds so fucking cool, dude. I gotta. I want. I, I want to be involved in that whenever that happens. Like, p- <laughs> pull me on the short list of, uh, of names, please. You, we'll you said I'll like have. all the buzzwords that I that I want to hear. Um, no, but it's tough. It's tough to um, maintain personal project. Something that I think a lot of people don't understand. And I, I've learned it as I've gone more and more into the music biz. Yeah. I'm on I'm on the outskirts, but um it's it's really fucking hard to maintain a living with uh doing music. And oh, yeah. you could be in a successful oh, yeah. band yeah. and not be able to pay the bills. Like it's it's rough. Yeah. But I
1: I actually realized that when I I actually did a an art cover for one of the MCs from Jurassic Five, because I, I oh, put cool. out on Tumblr, I was like, I really like Jurassic Five. I yeah, did yeah. a little doodle, and then one of the MCs was like, hey, would you want to do some art for my cover? And I was like, wow, oh, he cool. must be rolling in it. And then it was <laughs> like, not so much the case and I was like oh, I felt so bad that I asked for such a big price and I was just like yeah so yeah, yeah. No. music is tough music is very tough even if you've had like huge hits worldwide
2: you
0: know no. yeah because like streaming numbers are nothing like you you could have a song with a million listens and it's just like it's like maybe at most like a thousand dollars a month maybe like you have to be a really successful right. on, on spotify and then beyond that it's like you know touring and like and that's not even a thing right now and even if, i know no it's it's fucking hard and um yeah and it's like you have to kind of be very business-minded which musicians aren't always business-minded like artists you know like anything like it's it's not um it's not a skill that everyone that's creative necessarily has and yeah, so yeah. that's where agents come in. That's where managers come in, I guess. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. And our own persistence, you know, we just have yes. to keep trying. And honestly, I think I would still be making music if I was working at UCLA right now. I would still be putting out albums. I'd be on Spotify and I'd be doing shows. And right now during the you know, during the pandemic, I'd be doing something else, maybe trying to make videos. It's something that I know I was gonna do forever, regardless. It's just it's that much a part of me that um but i'm just very lucky that things worked out the way they did and i ended up doing this shit yeah
1: do you feel like uh what's you know what what's kind of the your day your your day, your day to day routine like when you are composing actively composing for a show uh, what's kind of the back and forth with the EPs? Who's mm-hmm. your main talking point? I wanna know a little bit about that, kind of yeah. how that happens.
2: Absolutely. So the way this works is um, I don't work on a cartoon until we have a locked picture. So that's, uh, you know, uh, 11 minutes that say that, are no, that is no longer gonna be uh, edited or time, there's gonna be no more time changes to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once that's ready, I sit down with the director let's let's say Carl Greenblatt on Jellystone.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: we sit down in a room and we watch it together and he has some pretty clear ideas of what the music should be in different scenes. He'll say, okay, like right here, uh, Huckleberry wanders in the room and now we need his sort of like kind of silly dopey theme behind him. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden Yogi's gonna walk in and then make the music change and it's gonna be a little more chaotic. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Then I'll say like, well, should it be chaotic or maybe should stick, which we stick with the Huckleberry theme because it's still through his perspective. And Carl will say, no, uh, I think we got to change, blah, blah, blah. So then, okay, we'll go back and forth like that. And then um, at the end of our meeting, which takes about, I don't know, 45 minutes, we'll have a good sense of how many cues there's going to be in this episode and how long they're all going to be. In my notes, I'll have everything written out. I'll know exactly what has to be written. I'm not guessing at all. And then I go home. And when I start, um, composing, I have a clear idea of all the cues and, um, and I start writing. That's mm-hmm. sort of like technically how it works. And then what happens is I present those ideas and we do a review session. Uh, it'll, it'll normally be like, okay, Carl, like everything except for like three cues and, uh, I'll go back and change those. And then I deliver final stems to the mix house and repeat. We repeat the whole process again, uh, next week. It Happens for a year. Yeah,
0: I yeah. Uh, I've been lucky enough to visit your your house, and it's very impressive, and has a a, a lot of really cool musical equipment, and uh, and like like musical toys. Like you have you have so much stuff that is at your fingertips. How do you kind of choose what to gravitate towards, or because I'm sure you know the general sounds that each thing that you have makes. Um, yeah. but is there a sort of process to how you start writing and coming up with these sounds or is it just pretty
2: like organic and fluid? Well, we should get into the, the, the concept of, of the creative block, which is, oh yeah, let's do it. No, so, cause cause this applies and you're not going to like this. Okay. <laughs> but, well prepared. but here's the reality is that, you know, we, t- we often romanticize the idea of the the, the musical or artistic journey and, you know, we have our muse or we have, you oh, know, yeah. Lord speaking through us and it comes in and we filter it out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, none of that is happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have an assignment that's due, let's say Friday <laughs> yeah. at mm-hmm. 10, 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. As soon as I sit down, I start writing. There's no waiting for any inspiration. Right. You just uh, go. There is no creative block. It just doesn't exist. At this point, I wake up, as soon as I sit at my desk, my hands, as soon as they hit those keys, I'm composing. Right. I'm not exploring, like, I'm just making notes and I'm making decisions like every second, like, you know, C to G sharp. Like you have, to, it's like, you have to commit every second to an idea. If you stopped and dwell, if you dwell on it, like nothing's gonna happen. So I have to trust my instincts, and I almost immediately know what it is that, that I need to hear and what instruments are. Going back to your question, I, early on in the, in the production of a show, we decide what the palette, excuse me, the palette of sounds is gonna be. We know Jellystone has this instrumentation and these voices. And I also know stylistically what those voices do. I know there's kazoos all the time. And I know the kind of melodies that are specific to Jellystone, and they're different than the ones I write for SpongeBob or for Harvey Beaks. Like it's almost like being like a voice actor and learning an Irish accent mm-hmm. or like you know, you know, a southern accent. like i it's like language variations that i that I know in my head. Like I could hear them very clearly. I know how jellystone stuff goes. Um, so I have the set sounds and then I have um, the set style and it's already there. Like it's, it's pre-existing, at least in my head. So it's just a matter of sitting down and just getting it out there. And I have to sort of be very consistent. I have to have a schedule. I have to be very disciplined. I know there's 30 cues to be written and I have to be done with at least 10 by today, another 10 tomorrow. And, you know, the last 10 or you know sometimes i know this cue that's going to come up as a big action scene it's going to take me longer so maybe i can squeeze 15 today and only five tomorrow because i know this is going to take longer so i have to sort of calculate these things and uh sounds like boards uh, (laughs) it sounds like yeah Yeah. so you guys relate this this kind of makes sense or does this apply to what you guys do yeah of course Anything. It's very,
1: yeah, very Design, similar to what anything. I do. Mm. I uh, I I mean, I relate to what you're saying in the sense that like for boards, um, uh, nobody exactly tells us like um, how much we need to get done per day. They just give us a task and then a deadline. And what's complicated for a lot of artists is mm. that, they, they, because production doesn't break it down for them, they actually have to do it themselves. And it's something that I've started to do for my team as a director is like, look, we have 40 pages and we're four artists. It's 10 pages per artist and we have two weeks. So uh, 10, you know, divided by 10 is one, get through one page a day. And it's kind of like this kind of making it like you say, because if you don't break it down that way, then you run into the problem of like, I have some storyboard artist friends that will do nothing for a week and then crunch like crazy for a whole week and not sleep for three days so it's kind of like yeah
2: Mm. so are you in a similar uh position where like you can't have creative block because you know there's a deadline
1: i think for me i see it differently it's like there's for me, for, for a job, for a job, job, there's not really like a creative block because I will have done the work of asking everything to my supervisor. So right. kind of similar to what you're saying is like, what do you want to see? What's the emotion yeah, here? You have what are we doing? Yeah. So it's kind of like executing them is easier for my personal work. Sometimes that does happen though. Cause I, I have no one that I can ask questions to. I only have to answer to myself. And then, you know, that's when you're like, Oh do I know what I want to do? And that's when it could potentially be a creative yeah. block because, I, you know, if you don't know, then.
0: <laughs> yeah. What about you, two? Well, because, yeah, I was going to say um, professional work is, is different. And I think it, because most of the time things are structured in a the pipeline, there's less, it's both less of a burden to have to generate ideas because somebody before you has done that work. Like, I would not want to, be a professional writer that's kind of that's that's the place where you gotta come you know pull stuff out of your ass like you have to generate whole episodes and arcs and like um that's a that's a tough spot to be but by the time it gets to boards or design the direction is pretty well figured out and so you're just kind of executing within the the toolbox that you already have and so like with professional work I don't think I've ever had any kind of creative block. I might just be lazy. <laughs> I might just be procrastinating.
2: <laughs> right, you know? right.
0: But even but V is right. It's like you, you know, when I was doing design, I would break it up and I'd be like, well, I can do this many today. I can do this many tomorrow. Um, I would always do the easiest stuff first. That's that's uh when I had uh, you know, forty backgrounds to do in two weeks, I would get through like twenty easy ones in a day sometimes. Yeah. Um and then narrow it down and then i would put off the most difficult one until the the last one but uh but that kept me working so i didn't have to, i didn't hit that wall of like oh i have to do all of this shit and then with boards for me like i can't always do let's say a page a day like that's that doesn't always work for me but similarly Ooh. i would sometimes do all the easy sequences first like i would do all of the um talking head kind of shots, just like block it in, block all all the stuff that I know is gonna be there. So when I'm looking at that big fucking timeline of panels, it's mostly green, you know? And then it's like, oh, okay, now I can do the red parts, the stuff that I haven't. So it's like, it's different. But yeah, when it's personal work, that's different, right? Cause there's nobody giving you instruction. There's nobody, there's nobody to really turn to. Maybe if you have a partner that helps, but there's nobody to turn to for any kind of feedback or advice and that's when it gets tough for, for me. Um, but yeah, well, I was going to, and I was going to tie it back into what we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, you, you were saying how you'd love to do more personal work, but like you, you're in a position where the scoring that you do is sound so much like you, it sounds so much like your style, at least to me. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you feel like you've had to find some kind of, uh, (laughs) compromise with that, but I, maybe that's, Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just that, like you know, you're you're able to kind of put a lot of yourself into your professional work, so you don't feel as compelled to do stuff on the side. Would you say there that that's
2: that. yeah? Yeah, I would say that's true because I'm very lucky in that I'm at the point where people do hire me for the way I sound. You know, um, very quirky. Uh, <laughs> thanks. A, is that a, is that a compliment? Because it should be. Yeah, I lo- listen. I'll take anything. At no, this it's point. good. I love it. Yeah, honestly, like uh, the um. I think I, I have a, a, I'm anxious to perform live. That's like the one thing I don't do. Yeah. Uh, so that, that that's where that lies. And, you know, talking about, uh, I've been in meetings before, and I've said this before in other interviews where like, one time I was meeting with Disney guys about a new show. And I go, look, I, I don't, I can't do everything. Like either it's going to be like, I'm going to be perfect for this, or it's going to be a total disaster. Right. There's, I don't <laughs> I'm not like the middle of the ground composer that does everything. Like I do pride myself in the fact that I have a a particular voice, you know, and I attribute that to eclectic tastes. The fact that, and the fact that I'm untrained, you know, I never took any sort of formal musical lessons and I love weird music. I love punk rock, Mm -hmm. of metal. Like all these things play a role in, in my scores. Uh, even something like Cuphead, mm-hmm. you know, um, I was working on Cuphead and I went to, um, went to go see a band called the Circle Jerks last week. Um, and I was watching this band. They're like a, a late 70s, early 80s hardcore punk band from Southern California. And the entire House of Blues was just a giant mosh pit circling and I took everything in my power to stop myself from jumping right into that I was in the back watching I'm like nope I'm not going to do it but I really wanted to yeah. really badly and I realized punk rock is the only music that drives me to physical action like I want to fight I want to dance I want to like smash my face in the ground yeah and John Williams doesn't do that to No, no. Zimmer, none of it does you know so I'm like how do I bring that into a score into a big chase scene in, in, in a cop head as being chased by the devil, you know? And there's a urgency to punk. There's a naivete and an innocence that I try to put in my music. And by that, I mean like punk, The my favorite punk rock, like a band like the Buzzcocks, for example, their first EP, Spiral Scratch, these young guys could barely play their instruments and you could hear it. You could hear this beauty in the innocence and like, the, the, the wrongness and and like the the struggling and the playing, like they could barely eke sure. out guitar solos. And I love that. And I'm like, I look for that in what I do. Like I'll leave mistakes. Like I'll, I could barely play these piano parts and I'll leave errors in it. Like right even in the ending um, theme song to uh, the Cuphead show, the piano thing. And there's a, it's a piano and tambourine only. And I remember my assistant Ben was like, hey, do you want me to fix those tambourines? They're all off time. And I'm like, no, leave them like that. <laughs> I like how it sounds off, not landing on the beat. I like that there's something wrong here. I like when things are out of tune. Yeah. And I like musicians that like are doing things they're not supposed to be doing. Like I hired these two guys um, that go by the name of Moon Hooch. They're like a saxophone duo. Mm -hmm. They're like essentially do saxophone dubstep techno. It's insane. (gasps) You gotta hear them. You're gonna love them. But they're the farthest thing from jazz. It's like all very robotic, mechanical uh, and all these like squelchy siren sounds that they do with the horns. And uh, I go, you're perfect for this because I got hired to do Cuphead and I've ne- never had done j- jazz in my life. You know, uh, in some ways I feel like I constantly pull the wool over the eyes of like uh, directors and, and studios every time I get hired. But, um, but I think we do our best art when we're outside our comfort zone. The fact oh, that yeah. this is the first time I've written jazz, is what makes it interesting it's like the first buzzcocks album all over again you know or the first joy division album it's like they didn't know harm the proper harmony and they were just kind of doing it wrong but yet it sounds right it's all this sort of stuff is amazing to me so yeah, yeah.
0: coming up with new noise um do you know the group uh too many zoos
2: yeah that that's sort of like um moon Hooch came first and then those guys came afterwards
0: yeah i yeah. suspect it is as such but yeah oh. I'm just wondering yeah. if that, you're familiar with them. Sure.
2: Yeah. 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 I'm familiar with them too. I, I, the, s- yeah.
0: I saw them live and it was a lot of fun. And it, it reminded me of, cause it's the same kind of like, it's like, yeah. A uh, brass dubstep. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like the best way to explain it.
2: But uh, Moon Hooch is the OG. Yeah. They're great. That's yeah. Fun. All that stuff is fun. It's like a whole scene now. It seems like. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's the like modern interpretation of, of jazz almost. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, we had a bunch of good questions on Twitter. I'd love to get into. Um, uh, Okay, let's dig in uh, from at Molly underscore Monstera. Happy birthday, Molly. Uh, it's not going to be a birthday by the time this comes out. Um, question, who slash what is your biggest non-musical influence?
2: Let's go with uh, David Lynch, Werner Herzog, another amazing director, mm-hmm. Harmony Corinne, another great director, um, Jodorowsky. Mm-hmm director uh, Salvador Dali the Marx brothers uh yeah how about that would you, you really, a lot do you of-
1: like the surrealism i was going to
0: say yeah it's <laughs> yeah. surreal and absurdist like you you definitely lean towards a certain aesthetic
2: when when dali came to america for the first time he um he came with a mission like i'm going to find what is surrealism in america and um after a few years he wrote a letter to The poet André Breton Mm -hmm. back back home, and he says, "I have found the the top American surrealists, and they are the Marx brothers and Walt Disney." Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of get it because I I feel like in my life I've had that same journey. I want to find where is surrealism today, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's in cartoons. It's definitely you know if, if Dali was alive, he would watch SpongeBob SquarePants. Probably. You know, that is like the height of absurdity. If you just sort of watch it like as a, with a serious face and analyze what's happening on that screen, it's like, mm-hmm. this is high surrealism. You know, we're so used to it because we see it every day and we're just surrounded by, you know, data and, and surrealism, you know, in Coca-Cola advertisements, it's data art, essentially. Uh, and, but it is, it's, it's really out there. And I, I gravitate towards that. Anybody that's doing that, I want to find them. I want to be like Dali finding Walt Disney and the Marx Mm. Brothers. Who are these people now? And that's sort of the quest as a as a composer right now because I gravitate towards absurdity. Like that's all I want to do. That's Mm -hmm. all I want to make and be a part of.
0: Yeah, a lot of web animation too is like really pushing the boundaries. And I noticed that. (laughs) Yeah, it
2: seems like there's a whole like I I love young people online. uh, You see TikToks like there's a lot of anti humor humor. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. People yeah like exactly you yeah. people
2: consider funny is so different than what older people do and i love that i, I, I always like i try to understand and be like yes this is the future i don't get it but I know yeah it's
0: not- well it's become almost dadaist right like it just become at a certain point like humor yes. has become art in itself like a lot of uh mimetic i guess content it just becomes like absurd and you have to be aware of the context within a context just to get what the joke is like it's 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 or uh... even
2: if you don't it could just be like the word hanger bird and that's (laughs) it
0: and it's like There there was a meme going around that was just like a really blown out image of like the youtuber markiplier and it just had the letter e under it and i and like people kept sharing it around and i to this day i barely fucking understand like but it was just like it was like a response to a response to a response. You know, it just it was like uh, it's. I love it though. It's the future. It's it's bizarre.
1: I think it's also just like it kind of comes with the freedom of uh, being so indie. You know, internet. You can just share stuff and share stuff, and you don't need to put a lot of money in it. Right. It's, right. It, yeah, it's true really that like I feel like surrealism and like uh, Dadaism and all those. I you know like those avant garde movement. It's like. That's not really where where the money is. It becomes later like influence for like mainstream. art. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh even Lynch, it took him a while, I guess, to yeah. That, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: But for me, like the most subversive thing you could do with art is penetrate the mainstream. You know, when I, I saw mm-hmm. a billboard for American Express with David Lynch's face on it driving once. And I was like, wow, it's real. Yeah. Like, this mm-hmm. guy makes a racer head and he's on an American Express ad and think that's making, what I want what is the equivalent of that, that in my life you know oh, man it's
0: it's I, I don't understand how Lynch got so into the mainstream like the the Twin Peaks like I guess continuation was so popular and I'm like when did this fucking happen like when does this
2: it's so yeah weird. but I'm I'm here for it you know I'm glad there's new audiences and young people that yes. love David Lynch yeah I think it's great mm-hmm. um
0: at Chevy Shen one asked, how was the experience in working with a full orchestra
2: with Harvey Beaks? Wow, that was amazing. It was intimidating. It was beautiful. I cried. <laughs> I had a lot of sort of like epiphanies as it was happening. And I'll share my favorite. Yeah, with please. You. We're up in Seattle at a place called Studio X, it's a beautiful studio and a place where Some of my favorite bands had recorded and done stuff. Nirvana was there, Soundgarden recorded there. They recorded Black Hole Sun in that room where I was recording with an orchestra. And uh, so here we are, 50 musicians, members of the Seattle Opera and Seattle Philharmonic. I have um, orchestrator, conductor, Steve Bartek, who's Danny Elfman's um, orchestrator Mm -hmm. uh, at the podium. And, you know, I introduced myself to the musicians. Now I'm sitting at the booth with our engineer and our copyist and producers from Nickelodeon and director and everybody's there. And we all have, everyone has the, the giant books of sheet music open, you know, the, the engineer and the, and the copyist and everyone, everyone's looking at everything. Steve has it. And they put one in front of me and they open it up. And I'm like, all of a sudden I have this feeling like when you were back in school, And like you lose, you don't know what you're looking at and you don't know what page you're on in a reading assignment and you look at your neighbor like to see what page you're on. Yeah, yes. Because the orchestra's playing and they're all flipping pages together. And I don't know how to fucking read music. Uh. Like literally I'm watching other people flip and then I'm flipping, right? Like what am I, and then I have this moment of what the fuck am I doing? Why am I pretending like I I need to follow along here? Like there's (laughs) 70 people here that are all being paid because of me. Why am I pretending? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how to read music. So kind of like when Luke Skywalker turns off the little, the little thing. Yes. The, what's that thing over his eye? You and like, like a visor, Luke, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I gotta just use the force and trust my ears. I'm here because I could hear this music in my head, and I don't, I don't need to look at it on paper. I need to close my eyes and listen, like Luke when he closed his eyes to blow up the Death Star, right? So I did that, and I just was freeing this moment of, ah. I could be me. I belong here. I'm not an imposter. This is my home. And uh, yeah, it was that moment where I kind of just, a moment of clarity where I was like, okay, I don't give a fuck. This is me. This is what I do. I do it my own way. And that's that. Imposter syndrome
0: sucks, man. And it's it's anytime it's a new experience, it's going to creep up because it's, you know, you You don't feel comfortable in that zone, and so it's like i i i just think it's such a funny image that to feel like you have to follow along i completely i completely understand it though um yeah that, that's the story yeah, that's great um from adam Bills uh he had a few questions yeah. um uh let's start with are you ever given a musical direction or are you left up to your own devices
2: okay so yeah, there is direction right there's there's both. So we sit down at these spotting sessions and we'll watch every scene like I described earlier. And I'm giving direction as to what is the what are the emotional needs of this scene? And um, it's up to me, my own devices is how I interpret that, what that means and create the music. So in the ideal situation, the best case scenario is when a, a director or producer doesn't speak to me in musical terms, but only speaks On emotional terms oh okay what are the emotional needs of the scene here once you start getting into well how about a clarinet going uh c sharp i'm like oh fuck, here we go right that's like Hmm. that's not as fun what's fun is cuphead is scared uh because his brother's mad at him and he's not sure if uh what's gonna happen so like how do i achieve that because that could be done a million different ways sure um you could use any instrument to create an emotion but listen i know what the palette is for a show like i described earlier so i could achieve whatever the emotional needs are within the palette and scope of um, the cuphead um, sound so uh yeah it's a little bit of both there is uh me being left to my own devices but also a lot of direction yeah sure
0: uh the next question was do you get to see what you're scoring ahead of time
2: yes we definitely do it's like In certain cases, no though. Like if I'm writing a song, um, I'll do that in advance. And then the animators will create the animation to my song because they're gonna match the mouth movements and the arms swinging around or whatever it may be. Um, But yeah, every time I compose music in general, I'm I'm given a locked picture that I watch and I'm actually writing notes as I watch it. Like I'll play it back over and over and then my hands will just kind of pluck out the notes that are supposed to be happening with that scene so yeah i'm always always watching maybe right at the very end i stop i kind of turn it off and i just kind of start cleaning up my my final music to make it like uh polished at that point at that point i don't have to look at the picture anymore but yeah so you're Jack just gonna and-
0: block stuff in at first sounds like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, similar. It's similar to art. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, his last question was: Has a show ever changed a scene based on music you have provided? Which I think is interesting.
2: Mm, You know, we unfortunately we can't really because you know animation it's it's like nine months of right (laughs) everything's leading up. It's like I can't. They can't all of a sudden be like, Hey, ego, that's great. Why don't we just extend the scene because that song is so great? Yeah we can't uh, <laughs> uh have you ever scored for an animatic?
1: Yeah, I was going to ask that.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, like if there's um something that's just really big and important, like a big important sequence that they want to just see like what it's going to be like way in advance, I'll score an animatic uh for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh if I'm testing for a new show, I'll um right. I'll do I'll like write music to an animatic. Mm-hmm. I know how to read them. I know. I get it. You know, I, I get yeah. the whole thing and
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, from at Neptune 43 is yeah. there anything about composing music for shows that surprised you at first?
2: Hmm. Well, uh, maybe I didn't realize how quickly everything had to be turned around, oh, yeah. how intense schedules could be and how, You know if you allow it time it could be taken away from you so you have to be assertive and like you know stand your ground when you need two weeks or whatever you maintain that um yeah i i guess i didn't know some of the politics of this stuff also um but yeah maybe that's the only thing the time thing kind of sucks when it's gets tighter and tighter uh I always maybe romanticize the idea that, oh, you know, you score, and when you're done scoring, it's ready. ready. That's what I hope. That's clearly not the case. So that's probably the the biggest surprise. Like, okay, I have to be very disciplined. I can't just be an artist. I have to be like an administrative, like punctual, organized calendar person. Yeah. Uh, And if you're lucky enough to have someone help you and have an agent or an assistant, then... Life gets a little bit easier because they could sort of. I could turn to my assistant Ben and be like, "Ben, what do I need to be? What do I need to get done by tonight?" He's like, "You got to finish half of this episode, or else blah blah blah." I'm like, "Okay, great." Can so, I yeah. can I ask what kind of stuff your assistant helps you with?
0: Say that again. Can I ask what kind of stuff your assistant helps you with?
2: Sure, uh, everything that is not writing music. So mm-hmm. as soon as I'm done writing, uh, Ben will take all the stems export the stuff which goes to the studio, Uh, we'll have a spotting session and he'll run the video, he'll take notes. Um, If we're putting in, um, uh, let's say I have like all this music that I've written for Jellystone, uh, Ben will take tracks and say, hey, why don't we use these tracks here if we're going to reuse some stuff. Uh, He'll do a lot of special editing. Um, You know, we have this an old cue that I use that's really great, but we wanna reuse it. He could chop it up in a way and and sort of reformat, re-edit it in a way that fit perfectly in this new scene. Um, He'll be on top of calendars and and meetings and just everything so that I could just focus on writing and writing and writing. And once I hit, you know, save on the last thing, he's in charge of making sure it gets into the hands of the studio and the right people. Mm-hmm. And then there's cue sheets, and then there's a million other things that take up a lot of time uh, that, are, that are a pain in the ass.
0: Um, Neptune432 also asked, what kind of sh- uh, shows do you work best with, and how do you adapt your work to fit each show that you work on?
2: What kind of shows do I work best with? Uh, a show like, I think back on like what is one of my favorite things I've ever done, and it's like Harvey Beaks, Right that show was so special I feel like it was like a peak for so many of us that got to work on that um because it was just was such a good group of people and you know I think I'd rather work like with nice people on an okay show than like the best show in the world with a bunch of assholes (laughs) right I'd rather just be around a a, a good group of people you know and um Not only was it an amazing group of people, it was a good show too. So, and and also, I had a lot of freedom to create in my voice. Like that show, I think really sounds like me, like who I am. And to the point where, when I did my demo, like they asked me to do a demo of what I what I wanted for the show, and I made the first song, and that became the theme song. (laughs)
0: Like
2: my demo, just for what I what I felt the show should be, became the theme song. It was, I, I understood it immediately. And Carl knew I did too. So uh, that that's a super special show. What was the second part of that question, by the way?
0: Uh, it was a very good theme song, by the way. Um, uh, it was just, how do you adapt your work to fit each show you work on?
2: Uh, you know, yeah, there's a, every show has its own language and tone. And my goal is to sort of, if you're in the next room and you hear one of my cues, I want you to know what show that is right? just by hearing it. Um, so yeah, I, the same way, like a background artist uses a certain palette of colors and this is the tone and flavor of the show. Like I, I need to create sounds that are specific. So I'm, I'm always trying to create something that's unique to every show I'm working on. Um, and that's a challenge, but that's sort of what it's all about.
0: Do you find like a specific instrument, um, that you kind of build things around sometimes or how does that
2: work? Yeah. Um, yeah, like. Kazoos, for example, that is mm-hmm. sort of the core of Jellystone. Yeah, yeah, it sure is, huh? What are melodies that work on kazoos? And, you know, I, I often say, like, I, I aspire to stuff like Pop Goes the Weasel or uh, Three Blind Mice, mm-hmm. as far as, like, musical goals. Like, that is the hashtag goals, as the kids <laughs> say. Right? Like, it's, it's simple, simple melodies that are effective and memorable can I achieve that? I don't know, but I aim towards that stuff, you know, like these, like I said, those, like those kind of songs are, are what I'm trying to achieve um, and stuff that works with kazoos. And then just, just, I mean, God, that is such a silly show that Jellystone it makes me laugh thinking about the music I've written for it. It's very good. God,
0: uh, and, oh, it that's does, a fun one. and it matches the tone very well.
2: Um, Let me see. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to ask, so uh, at Encounters LTD uh, said your music for Harvey Beaks was also lovely. What was your favorite experience working
2: as part of that show? Uh, Well, we talked about the actually recording orchestral sessions. That Mm -hmm. was phenomenal. First time Nickelodeon had ever done that for a Nick tune. Somehow we convinced them like to spend this money and ship us all to Seattle and record. Uh, I love that so much. I love being able to write songs in Harvey i got to sing them um my favorite is probably this thing called the chance parade uh in an episode called a day of no to do uh, that was really amazing it just uh yeah yeah i get like 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 nostalgic and and almost sad like how how nice that was that show was amazing I was like adjacent to that show. Cause yeah.
0: I just like h- uh, hung out with the crew. Like it was just a really good crew and I like spent a lot of time. We played so much fucking smash brothers the whole time. Oh,
2: right. Uh, That's
0: right. And I think we might've met in passing at some point while, when I was just there, but um, before we met for real, but Ooh, uh, yeah. man, yeah, it was a really good crew. Like, and Carl, Carl is just good at bringing like-minded people together. Um, yeah.
2: He- he 's a master at that yeah and he's very good at trusting people like once he finds the people that he likes he just lets them yes. go yeah and that's what he did with me too like he knew that that I understood the vision of the show so he would be very trusting and letting me create and do what I wanted to do because it was the right thing to do yeah ideally yeah a show is a collaborative
0: thing and ideally a uh, showrunner or you know, creative director or whatever will find people who fit in and like do that. Like they'll let them just c- contribute yeah. and add to it cuz that's where you get sure. the best kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. Um from at Check Faster. Uh mm-hmm. they asked, "What's your favorite music piece composed for a show and what's the story behind how that was made?"
2: Boy, okay. Well, I'm going to I mean there's so many, but I'll just pick one. Sure. I got two record a my own version of the raymond scott song powerhouse for an episode of spongebob squarepants now if you don't know powerhouse it's famous from all the looney tunes um anytime there's like a assembly line or factory thing and you hear that's powerhouse right interesting so uh we um we needed that in spongebob and that was the first assignment i ever got on that show uh so i had to create a version that was like true to the raymond scott uh but also um uh true to the raymond scott sound but uh, also had to feel like spongebob squarepants so i had to do it with slide guitar some <laughs> yeah. ukuleles a lot of weird things and then also i had to fit the scene where spongebob is like on a bed that's flying through the through the ocean floor and he's going into uh, work and he's making Krabby Patties with his machine. and So it had to like bob and weave and do all this intricate stuff while still being powerhouse, while sounding like SpongeBob SquarePants. So that was- a, God, what a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that was a monster. And it was uh, the first thing I got to do for them and just a tremendous honor on so many levels, being able to do that song because that is like the most iconic cartoon song there ever was, but also being a part of SpongeBob, which is the most iconic cartoon show there ever was in my opinion. and uh that it was me doing it and sort of it sounding like me as well and it just like that was a mind-blowing amazing thing to be a part of yeah
0: uh speaking of spongebob uh at art of spongebob asked what was it like working with nicholas carr for spongebob if you even worked with him at all and were you given any guidelines when doing the music editing for spongebob
2: so after i did this uh, this uh powerhouse thing i just described um you know, they were fond of what I was doing. They were like, they wanted to keep using me for different song things or different musical moments. Uh, but be, there came a need for editing. Now, Nick Carr is the editor for SpongeBob who's been doing this for some 20 years, and he's brilliant. He does amazing work. Um, but for some reason, they needed some additional editing work on, on the SpongeBob episodes. So they asked me if I would do it, I agreed. And uh, the producers gave me like this library, but couple of thousand tracks uh but I never got to meet Nick and I was kind of no I don't, I don't want to say I was on my own devices because I met with Mark and Vincent and they helped me but um I didn't get to talk to Nick until like gosh a month or two later then we we talked on the phone for a long time and he helped me a lot like he gave me all this other music and he told me that he explained what APM was which I had no idea which is this uh you know this music library with Probably millions of tracks that you could access and pull, because uh, you know SpongeBob uses primarily what we call needle drop, just sort of like old music that we place. Right, it's not all original, right? And that's what what's, that's what gives the show its charm because it's um, it's the way they use old tracks from the '50s or '60s or whatever and place them. And that's Nick's talent. That's why he's the greatest editor that Nickelodeon's ever had because he knows how to make this stuff work perfectly in SpongeBob. So yeah, after a couple of months of me working on it I finally got to meet him and uh he gave me a lot of pointers and he sent me you know a bunch of tracks that I never had and uh yeah I and the work became a lot easier and it was great and eventually I met other talented guys like um Sage and Jeremy that wrote a lot of that music for Spongebob Squarepants uh like Sage, Jeremy, Nick have I would say created the best music that's ever come out of Nickelodeon you know and uh I finally got to hang out with Sage. In fact, he was going to come over tonight, but he's in um, Damn. Palm Springs. But I'm going to see Sage and Jeremy on Monday for breakfast. Nice. Uh, so hopefully, <laughs> you know, we're going to collaborate on, on some uh, Sponge Universe stuff in the future. At least I'm hoping, because uh, those guys are just fucking amazing. Um, I mean, yeah, the sound that they created is what I'm talking about. Like if you're in another room and you hear the little ukulele or that slide step, like instantly recognizable around the world. I mean, you could be anywhere on the planet yeah. and the sound is what these guys made. They're, it's, they're the best. Super and, you iconic. know, I got to talk about this because the last three things I've worked on, I feel like I'm like having to follow these giants <laughs> and it's super scary. Like Cuphead, right? Like Chris, Chris Madigan's score for the game became the n- number one on the Billboard Jazz charts. Damn, It's fucking phenomenal. And all of a sudden, now I have to follow oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Imagine SpongeBob SquarePants. Like a yeah. uh, history of perfect music. And then I'm brought on as a new kid two or three years ago to, to start doing episodes. It's like, what a nightmare, right? Like, <laughs> going to be like, fuck this guy. Because uh, <laughs> I'm trying to sort of live up to whatever these guys did, but at the same time, bring in my own kind of style and irreverence that I like to bring to things. Uh, and then Jellystone, again, it's like the legacy of Hoyt Curtin's music in Hanna Barbera's in the 60s, 60s and 70s was perfect. Like, it's besides the voice acting, it's the best thing about Hanna Barbera cartoons. You know, it's like, well, character design, of course, but, but you know, frankly, there, there wasn't much story to the classic Hanna Barbera stuff, but it had amazing music and sound effects, and these characters are just completely memorable. And um, I had to sort of fill the shoes of Hoyt Curtin uh, for Carl. And that was like, holy fucking shit. When I was in my twenties, I wrote to Hoyt Curtin and he wrote me a letter and I still have it, you know? And and I'm thinking like, now I'm doing his job. Now that he's no, no longer here. So yeah, there's this tremendous pressure to, for me, like when I stop and think about it, like, wow. That's, this really sucks, <laughs> almost a lose, lose, you know, like you, how are you going to please everybody, you know, following what these guys have done? Do you feel but like, you try.
0: yeah, do you feel yeah. like it's a, a interesting challenge or is it something that, like, would you rather kind of stand on the shoulders of giants in that way? Or would you rather try to do something that's like fully your own, fully unique? Because different people have different preferences too.
2: Oh yeah, listen, I, I love the challenge. I love anytime I'm outside my comfort zone and I love pushing and trying to do new things. I love being confrontational. My favorite artists, like let's say a band like Diva, which yeah. you take for granted now, but when they first played, people threw bottles at them. Mm. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they were so irreverent and weird and they were like, sure. fuck you. And <laughs> uh, same with like a lot of the punk bands I like. and. Uh, so, I really love that irreverence. And, um, you know, when I worked on um, SpongeBob, I did this episode called um, SpongeBob in Random Land. Okay. And this was one of the weirdest episodes I had ever seen. I mean, talk about surrealism. It's so bizarre. I got a question about, about that
0: actually from at vale Bum 94 oh, So, weird.
2: that's great. Yeah. Good to me. Uh, it
0: was just how was your experience working on the SpongeBob episode, uh, SpongeBob in Random Land?
2: Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Let's do so, it. the artist Kaz wrote and created this. Um, you got to look at it. Boy, it's so surreal. I mean, it's bonkers. Anyway, for this episode, I'm like, okay, I'm just starting on this show. People are probably going to hate me, but I'm going to take all my favorite tracks from Sage and Jeremy and chop them up into little bits and then take all the little bits and fragments of these like five or six different songs and then rearrange them into completely new songs. And that's how I did the score. And Or I would take his his music and play it in reverse and then add instruments to it on uh on a like a backwards version of his track and like you know if you're a purist i mean this could almost feel insulting to this amazing <laughs> work because these guys are fucking brilliant they're the best i'm telling you they have made the best music at nickelodeon mm-hmm. period and but what i'm doing is coming in <clears throat> and just completely being irreverent and just screwing with it all and, uh, but I have to do that because that's who I am. This is the artist I am. And this is why they hired me. Ultimately that episode when I finished it is the only time I've ever had them say no notes.
1: Oh, really? Interesting. That's yeah. really cool. So and cool. Was
2: it. it was like the first and last time. <laughs> so I knew I did something right if uh, Mark and Vincent were that pleased, with right? It? Do you
1: feel like it's also, because of the nature of the episode, like, have you ever worked on any other episode that had this kind of content that was like that, that is, random and weird?
2: Uh, I don't know if you guys have watched it, but it's it's so weird. I love it so much. It's my one of my favorite things. Uh, uh, I've ever worked on for them. Uh, and now I'm part of the whole SpongeBob universe, right? I work on um, Patrick Star and and Camp Coral, but boy, mm-hmm. that is a monster in it. Phenomenal episode. I'm just so lucky to have been a part of that one.
0: Yeah, the fact that we had a specific question about it and you brought it up means something for sure. Great. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh what kind of stuff do you hope to work on in the future? What are your what are your goals? Do you have anything you are aspiring to do?
2: Yeah. Um look, at, I'm very lucky to be working on all these amazing projects. So I feel like I'm living my dreams right now working on the Cuphead show. Yeah. The SpongeBob universe, uh, working with Carl on Jellystone—that's amazing. Like I could not be happier. But I want to perform again. I want to make—I mu- want to make live music, and I want to figure that out. And that's sort of my next big goal um, in the next twelve months. Try to develop that into a show and see what I could do. Maybe it won't happen until next year. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. It's a tough but time I have... to be
0: doing live shows. It sucks. Like, well, yeah. maybe,
2: yeah. Well, That's why there's a lot of technical stuff I'm working on now with a with a, a good friend named John Abori, who's sort of my partner in the live project. And um, I'm also working with some animation artists to create like synchronized elements for the music um, so yeah, I'm trying to put together a team of people to help me build this show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a little ambitious, um, but I think I could pull it off. I think you can.
1: Would you ever do like some kind of VR type experience or ooh. like, are, is that something that you're ever looking it. at or, cause I, I during ooh. the pandemic, I followed a couple of like DJs who did sets online and, um, it's kind of cool because the they can, well, they, they not VR, it was just like YouTube, um, yeah. streaming, but like they can do all these very cool visuals. So I was wondering if that, what you think about like VR and like the, the, that experience online, because it's not exactly live, but it is live, you know?
2: <laughs> I know what you're saying. I love technology and I love utilizing technology, but I really want it to be an in-person thing I do. Okay. And I love if there's a way to incorporate that, those elements, that'd be amazing too. I remember Craftwork the band, they did a show where everyone in the audience had to wear 3D glasses and, <laughs> oh, shit. and all these 3D elements. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's gotta be some sort of AR, VR version of a live show that incorporates performance, but also VR. I mean, somebody's gotta work on it. It's gotta be someone with more money than me, probably. probably. But uh, yeah, I love all that stuff. I'm always trying to, you know, learn about new tech technology, especially when it comes to music and performance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're
2: sort of two different things, but it, it is like interesting how
0: the industry has had to pivot uh, because, you know, like I said, like live shows are really fucking hard to do right now. Yeah. yeah. And it's a risk.
2: It's coming a-
1: back though. It's coming yeah, back. It yeah.
2: But I need a good year to develop this show anyway. So yeah. by the time it's, ready, oh, yeah. it's it'll be fine. Yeah, hopefully we'll be out of this yeah.
0: uh, bullshit. <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> I know, man. I've lost all hope. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, no, but that sounds great. And yeah, I, I will definitely be there whenever you do that show.
2: <laughs> good, um,
0: good. I will be on the stage. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> manifesting. Um, but Has your
2: band been playing?
0: We played you- a show last August. There was like a bit of a lull, you know, where things were like, oh, things are not completely terrible and right. we snuck in right in that moment like we, we we were lucky and we had a pretty good turnout a very good turnout actually and um right. and then it like and then september was like oh no we got all this like a new strain like it was just like immediately right. back yeah right. um but we do have a show coming up actually it might be right around the time the let me know I either i will uh we'll talk yeah. about it later but um yeah yeah it's it's uh it's coming back uh i'm seeing a concert next week and like i went to see the aquabats a few months ago and it was it felt like normal like it felt you know yeah. people are wearing masks People want to go out people want to go they're, out
1: they're done so yeah shows are happening i mean coachella is happening so oh
0: god yeah the festivals are coming back that's what's fucking mm-hmm, crazy mm-hmm um yeah. but i mean yeah people are vaxxed and i don't know my my gym stopped uh asking for masks and i'm like eh. <laughs> but it is nice i don't know like i was i'm like well i've had three shots and i got COVID already once and so i'm like eh, i don't know i might as well it um, depends
1: on the county anyway it but does depend on the enough county. about you're right
0: why Cal- are we talking about COVID? <laughs> um, it's on all our minds um but yeah no, I'm looking forward to the uh, any live stuff you do. And uh, is there any shows that you would love to do music for that you haven't had a chance to? Any IPs, maybe?
2: Oh, boy. Let's think. Let's think here. Take your time. What would be an amazing thing to be a part of that? Like I said, I'm so blessed and lucky to be part of these amazing ones already. Right now, at this moment. Cuphead. I mean, that's nuts. Jellystone is amazing. But what is out there?
1: Is there maybe like a genre, like, or maybe like an adult animation, or? Oh yeah. Would you rather, you know, experimental or something? I think I,
2: I, I asked my agent to reach out for um, the Tim Burton series, the Adams Family thing that he was doing. Oh, cool! Um, that would be perfect. But it turns out that Danny Elfman's doing that. Of course. So.
1: Uh, he's yeah. <laughs> you
2: you shot for the moon. <laughs> you really <laughs> really did. You know he's gonna. So. He's got his people. <laughs> Right. Which happened to be my people. So it's all kind of fucked up. Right. Think. Uh, um, yeah. Wait a minute. What else is out there? It's got to be, I don't know. Let me, I, I have to do on that one. I, well, that's a tough one. When you come back on the show. Yes. You'll have that answer ready.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for, for being our guest
2: ego. Yeah. Did this work out? How How was it talking about music rather than uh, art? Did you guys like that?
0: I, I like talking about it a lot. We're still going with, with the show. We're not wrapping up quite yet. Um, oh, okay, okay. I want to know if there's anything you want to plug while you're on here.
2: No, I don't have anything to plug. I just, uh, I'm just very happy to be, you know, talking to you guys. Um, there's
0: Cuphead. Cuphead just came out. You did the music for Cuphead. Oh my
2: God. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're right. Let's plug Cuphead, which came out last Friday. Yeah. Plug Jellystone that comes out March 17th, season two. I didn't even know that. I worked on that.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I had no idea so that I was wondering when that second half was going to drop. Yes. And. Some of my favorite music and stuff is going to be in this next one. There's so much funny stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't wait for people to see that. Yeah, let's plug that. Let's plug Carl Greenblatt's show. The second half of that
0: season is so fucking funny. And I, I was like, I, I thought about it like yesterday. I was like, wait, when is that coming out? And uh, that's good to know. By the time this comes out, I think it will be out on HBO Max already. So
2: um, This will be out by March 17th. This will be out
0: uh yeah maybe yeah around that time i think something like that i don't right. remember the schedule our producer our excellent producer malay keeps track of the schedule uh, <laughs> shout out to me but yeah that's the end of this creative block ego thanks so much for being our guest and sharing your story
1: Thank and you thanks to your listeners follow us on twitter it's at creative block creative without the vowels where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask your guests Huge thanks to editor Clements for editing the podcast and Malik for helping us produce the show.
0: If you love our show, then support us on Patreon. Becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews as well as bonus episodes. Click the link in the description of this episode. I've been your host, Jean.
1: And I was V, keeping creative, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye.